your handout this evening, you will notice that we're going to cover verses 8 to 11. And we begin with that initial word in verse 8, the word therefore and its significance. Last week I made a case for the fact that verses 4 to 7 are a unit in and of themselves. This inaugural word in verse 8, the word therefore, confirms my suggestion that indeed the previous rhetorical unit ends at verse 7, and that means verse 8 begins a new rhetorical or literary section of this epistle. It it marks the beginning of the body of the letter. In our outline of the major structure, major and minor structure of the epistle, we made that point because we pointed out that Paul is using the indicative case here up to verse 17. So this section of verses 8 through 16 is full of the Greek tense in the indicative mood. And then he shifts the mood of the verb in verse 17 to uh, occasional imperatives. In fact, verse 17 contains the first imperative in the entire letter. So there are a number of reasons for underscoring the fact that verse 8 is the inauguration of a new unit, not the least of which is the word therefore, which feeds into other considerations, broader and more narrow, uh, for uh, signaling a, a, a kind of fresh start in the argument of the letter. Now, I suggested that in these verses, 8 through 11, there is a kind of mini-drama. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, for the first time, we learn in this letter that Paul has a relationship with Onesimus. And the drama of that relationship begins to unfold as we read through these four verses. It's expressed in terms of familial language or uh, father-son language, and it draws us into the poignancy of that imagery. So we've not known anything about this so far. In other words, if we had not introduced the whole letter in our original overviews, you wouldn't know anything about this. Supposing you were hearing this letter for the first time, that you were in Colossae and it was being read to you as a member of Philemon's house church, and now you were hearing for the first time, ah, Paul has a relationship with this slave who was once a part of this household, and this slave who disappeared under mysterious circumstances, or obvious circumstances as the case may be. And isn't it amazing? Isn't it interesting? Isn't it wonderful that Onesimus has come into the venue of the Apostle Paul, even in Roman imprisonment? All right, so you, you, get, the, you get the point here. <clears throat> there is the reconstruction of a very small drama beginning to unfold in this unit. And it is a drama which is entirely poignant and principial to Paul's approach to this relationship 
which includes Philemon as well. Now, the heart, of course, of that miniature drama, the heart of that encounter between Onesimus and Paul, even in Paul's imprisonment. The heart of that is the heart of Onesimus come to Christ. The Christianization of Onesimus, the conversion of Onesimus. Onesimus coming to Christ under the tutelage or encouragement or persuasion or proclamation. We don't know exactly how it came about, but that it came about, we know Onesimus has become a Christian as a result of Paul's relationship with him in Rome, even in prison in Rome. All right, so this uh, dramatic undercurrent is signaling a number of interpersonal relationships which are going to come out of the body of this letter, and we begin in verse 8 with the signal that we're dealing with something new in Paul's argument. Now, we also want to note how the apostle proceeds here. I've noticed, I've used the words incremental and escalating plea. And what I mean by that is that Paul does not make his case in one verse or one or two sentences. Paul makes his case with respect to Philemon in a series of incremental steps. He escalates his plea to Philemon by, and I'm going to borrow from Ernst Wendland again, that phrase that we used about deliberate discourse. He deliberately increases the plaintive character of his language and the plaintive fashion in which he approaches Philemon through this letter. There's a kind of increasing level of poignancy and plaintive uh, pleading here, which the apostle pours forth in the words that have flown from his, flowed from his pen as he's constructed this letter. And in so doing, it is a masterpiece of incremental rhetoric. It is a masterpiece of incremental oratory, if in fact he could have uh, spoken it. It is a masterpiece of literary uh, construction. It is, a, it is a microcosm of Paul's very patient and affectional mind for this uh, individual, Philemon, for the slave Onesimus, for the church in Colossae. This once again gives us a window into Paul's character, into his own heart, into his own Christian uh, nature, his own Christian character. All right, so we want to pay attention to how this unfolds as the body of, of the epistle develops in these verses this evening. Yes, Randy. <coughs> Yes. Are you going to deal with that here again? Is this, is this a separate? You met only in the first paragraph, or did you, it was not pressuring? 
No, I, I, I thank you for raising that. Uh, it would my answer last week would continue here. This is not pressure in sense of manipulation. He's not trying to force or uh, leverage Philemon. He's persuading him. He is drawing him into a method of thinking, a method of consideration, which will move his heart naturally. Yes. Okay, let's hold off on that for a moment. Okay, and I'll try to explain uh, why I think that is not uh, a a power word. Okay. All right. Now, um, in these four verses, the apostle begins to unfold, as I've alluded, begins to unfold his objective. Now, how does he do that? He does it in an escalating style. In verse 8, he prepares his case, or he prepares his plea. Then in verse 9, you'll notice that he says, For love's sake, I appeal. So this is the next stage in the escalation or the incremental advance of his persuasive plea, or his plea for persuasion, namely that he loves appealing here in verse 9. And then in verse 10, it is Paul appealing, I appeal, for my sake. You see how he's moving from just the preparation in verse 8 to love's appeal, the appeal of affection, then for my sake, my personal appeal in verse 10, And finally, in verse 11, actually at the end of verse 10, but uh, substantially in verse 11, the object of his appeal, who is Onesimus. Notice the little steps in Paul's procedure. I'm preparing you to hear me, verse 8. For the sake of love, I'm appealing to you. For my sake, I'm appealing to you. My, the apostle Paul's sake, I'm appealing to you. And I'm appealing to you on behalf of the object of my appeal, which is Onesimus himself. Now, the climax of this uh, long plea, this uh, plaintive uh, uh, and deliberate uh, persuasive uh, entreaty for Philemon to listen to what he's writing or hear what Paul's writing (coughs) is going to climax where? Where is this plea going to come to its end, going to come to its peak? Beyond that. Beyond that. Beyond that. 17. 17. Very good. Why? There's where the imperative occurs for the first time. Accept him. That's an imperative. Accept him as you would me. Everything prior to that is the plea of a poignant appeal. He never uses a command until verse 17. All of this between verse 8 and 16 is leading up to that climactic declaration or mandate. 
because an imperative is a mandate. Okay? He never uses the imperative until he gets to that 17th verse. It is the climactic, uh, the climactic denouement of this letter. And from there, we will, so to speak, flow down towards the next thing Paul's appealing for, namely that a place be prepared for him when he comes to Colossae, if in fact he ever did come to Colossae. All right, so my suggestion here is that because of the mood of the Greek verb, we never see the apostle using his authority to command or demand or to mandate any behavior or response on Philemon's part. He's drawing him towards that behavior. He's leading him to that behavior. He's involving him relationally in such a way that he'll come to that so that when verse 17 is read, when Philemon says verse, sees verse 17, it is Paul's hope that he will immediately respond to the imperative and actually accept Onesimus as the apostle pleads. So there is, uh, there's more in this escalating paradigm. We have to deal with verses 12 through 16 before we get to verse 17. But nonetheless, we're on the path of a very deliberate process of the apostle building up the poignancy and the, shall we say, the charity and affection of his appeal to uh, Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. Now, with respect to the format here, we noticed that particularly verses 9 and 10, when we dealt with the broad and narrow structure of the letter, handouts number 3 and 4 in this series on the epistle to Philemon, we dealt with the format of verses 9 and 10. And we labeled them a double anaphora followed by a double chiasm. Now, the anaphora occurs in the use of the word appeal. Appeal is used twice. It's the very same Greek word in both cases. It's used twice, once in verse 9 and once in verse 10. And it sets the introduction. It's a word that establishes an introduction for a chiastic arrangement. The chiasm of verse 9 focuses upon Paul the aged. Chiasm in verse 10 focuses upon Onesimus, the child. You can go back to those handouts and review that structure in particular, but we note here that there is a particular form for the way Paul makes his double appeal. It is an, it is an anaphoric appeal, and he doubles it by a chiastic duplication, which folds the characters in the drama into that mirror-like chiastic paradigm. And what is his method? What is his method? What, what is driving him to do what he's doing in this appeal? What is the relational vector, which is the fundamental foundation, fundamental base for the, for the reason that he proceeds the way he does? It is in verse 8. My method is to approach you how? In Christ. In Christ. There's the en Christo formula in the Greek. 
In Christ, I appeal to you. In Christ, I appeal for him. In Christ, I appeal for my child. In Christ, I denominate him useful to you. All right. Now, it's significant that he begins this section by underscoring one of the most famous phrases that appears in all of Paul's letters, the en Christo formula in the Greek, the in Christ formula in the Greek appears more than 19 times in Paul's letters. It is his favorite way of describing the relationship between himself and his Lord, the relationship between the Lord Jesus and those who belong to him, the relationship between the Lord Jesus and those who profess him in and through the church, which is his body. All right, so this phrase is very important to Paul's overall theological thinking. He thinks in the categories of being in Christ. He thinks in the categories of being outside of being in Christ. He thinks in the categories of union with Christ, being joined to Christ, participating in Christ, being identified with Christ, having the life of Christ in him as his life is in Christ as well. So this in Christ formula, which appears here, is crucial to the way he methodically appeals to Philemon and through Philemon and the reading of this epistle is appealing to the church in Colossae. Now, the New American Standard in verse 8 translates the Greek, I have confidence in Christ to order you. The word confidence here may be variously translated in versions that you have. NASB says, bold, I'm sorry, bold confidence. <clears throat> so do any of your versions say anything other than confidence? And if so, what do you read? Bold. Boldness or being bold, anything else? It can also mean frankness <clears throat> or candor. So Paul is being candid here. In fact, he's being quite bold. He has enough candor or frankness or boldness to order Philemon to do what he is pleading with him to do. And yet, he does not. He does not exert the power of his apostolic office. He does not exert the force of his authority in Christ. He says he could, but he doesn't. He, in fact, backs away from it in order to avoid the very notion that he's trying to manipulate Philemon to do what he wants him to do. You will notice down in verse 14 that what, he's, what his main goal is, as the New American Standard translated, he wants Philemon to act on the basis of his own free will his own free choice, his own free choice in Christ, his own free agency in the Lord Jesus. He wants him to be persuaded that what Paul has laid out in terms of this language of relational in Christ, back and forth, 
between Philemon, Onesimus, and himself. He wants him to realize that in that relationship, he freely comes to embrace the apostle's appeal. With no twisting of his arm, with no forcing of the issue, with no exercising his apostolic authority, by not lording it over Philemon's conscience or over the church in Colossae, by not giving any decrees or edicts or ex cathedra statements, what he is doing is, is he's being the patient pastor of Christian persuasion. Now, of course, this does not mean that the apostle, in certain circumstances, would not order that certain things be done. The Corinthian church is one sterling example of that, where he excommunicated the incestuous man by his own authority. But not here, not in this case, not with Philemon, not with the delicacy of the situation as it is before him. He realizes that he needs to draw Philemon into the frame of reference that he, the apostle, has with respect to Onesimus, which Philemon does not have because the frame of reference that Philemon has before this letter comes to him is the reference of a runaway slave. And Paul can tell him this runaway slave has run away to Jesus. And so I'm not going to pull my punches on you, Philemon. I'm not going to pull my authority on you. I'm not going to pull my office on you. I'm going to plead with you. I'm going to draw you into the same relational drama and dynamic that I have with your former slave. And in so identifying with him in Christ as I identify with him in Christ, then you will identify with me in my plea, in my double appeal, my appeal for love's sake, my appeal for my sake, whom you love in Christ as well. Yes, Robert. It seems to me he probably knows Philemon uh, rather well, and uh, he's, he's deliberately going through and pushing all his hot buttons. That's what it sounds like to me. Um. <clears throat> He probably wouldn't do this with uh, somebody else. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm not sure about that. Uh, I do see Paul being persuasive in case of Timothy and Titus as well. Uh, but at any rate, um, when you say hot buttons, um, you see, that once again, you're suggesting to me that he's taking advantage of his position. Now, I can't remove his position entirely from this letter. I admit that. But what, I'm, what I am persuaded of, in my opinion, is not, if the hot buttons are the hot buttons of a relationship in Christ, okay. Okay. Uh, if the hot buttons are the hot buttons of how you react to the news that a pagan slave has now become a Christian servant to the Apostle Paul, okay. okay. If the hot buttons 
are, once again, in relationship to Christ. Okay, but these are not manipulative hot buttons. Okay, these are not, I'm going to, I'm going to maneuver you by those hot buttons. I'm going to, in an untoward way, use my influence to make you do what I want you to do. I want you to come to this Philemon by understanding the circumstances, the change in this man's life, and the change in my life because of him, because he's been a servant to me in my imprisonment. I want you to understand the change. And out of that change, out of that in Christ change, that I want you to think of love for Christ's sake. I want you to think of me for Christ's sake. I want you to think of my child for Christ's sake. In other words, the focus stays on what he enunciates in that eighth verse. The focus stays on that in Christ dynamic, the drama of being one, united in Christ. That's my opinion uh, of the rhetoric here. Randy? Yeah, I think Onesimus, Philemon is a very wealthy person, so he's probably going to go back to work for him. It's just in a different, what Paul wants him to be is in a different relationship, like an employer, employee rather than a slave kind of thing. He wants him to be in a different relationship in terms of in Christ or out of Christ. Right, right. Okay? But what 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 will come out of that remains to be seen. Okay? But in Christ, that's the foundational relationship. That's the focal relationship. And as we see this letter unfold, then we will come to grips with what we think the result of that will be. But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Yet. We can't anticipate the end of the movie until we see the end of the movie. You can't be like my wife and say, does he live at the end of this movie? Do they get married at the end of this movie? She usually asks me that when it's a movie I've seen already. And I say, I have to say to my wife, watch the movie. Watch the movie. So I have to say to you who want to get ahead to the end of this epistle, wait for the end of the epistle. Here's my wife who wants to talk about you. Yes. <laughs> Just common sense would say if you want to persuade somebody to do something, you get further ahead by being nice than being by by being dogmatic. See, there it is. Don't be dogmatic. Be be, be nice. Okay. <clears throat> I will, ex- I will take an exception to what my wife says in some days. There are times when it's right to be dogmatic, but not here in Philemon. Okay. All right, now, I have there a uh, statement on the handout asking for your comments, Paul entreats Philemon. The word entreats. Now, this is not a common word in 21st century English vocabulary. And entreaty is not a word that we use commonly. So, uh, your comments on the word entreats. Question? Are you going to tell us the 
definition of that. I will, but I, I'm asking if, if you have a definition. What do you what do you think of when you hear that word that you don't hear of very much anymore? And maybe you haven't heard it since you were in English literature class a long time ago. Do you still want to speak art, or do you? Well, you know, the first thing that occurred to me was synonymous with appeals too, but I'm sure the root of that word is something different. Yes, you're right about appeal. Any other suggestions? Supplication. Supplication, good. A plea. There, very good. An obtestation. He obtests. Now, you see, even if you weren't familiar with entreaty, I know you're not familiar with obtest. O-B-T-E-S-T. It is in the dictionary. Once again, it is not used very often. It's a compound Latin word, OB, the preposition in Latin, which means because of or on account of, and test from testor, which means to bear witness, on account of bearing witness, or for the sake of bearing witness. And here, beseeching would be the derivative English sense of that Latin word. But it is a synonym for plead. It is a synonym for supplicate. It is a synonym for entreat or importune. So, obtest is your Scrabble word for the week or your crossword puzzle word for the week if you're working with the New York Times, which uses all kinds of weird, weird, rare terms that nobody's heard of anymore. And in fact, I have to admit that I had never heard of obtest until I was looking at my synonym finder in order to get variations on entreaty. <clears throat> and for those of you that are interested in word books, particularly young people that are interested in de- de- developing their vocabulary for writing uh, more appropriately, for writing more uh, eloquently <clears throat> and more penetratingly, you need a good synonym book. And Roger's synonym finder just doesn't cut it. If you want the best synonym book in the world, you want Rodale, R-O-D-A-L-E, Rodale's Synonym Finder. It is a massive vatamaker. So, using my synonym finder, I found obtest. And so I share that with you, particularly those of you who may someday take the college board exam. I like beseech. You like what? Beseech. You like beseech. Yes. Mary. Could have been, but not commonly. It would have to have been an egregious violation or he had done something like murder somebody in the process of escaping. Usually they wanted them returned. Punished as well as before they returned, but usually they wanted them returned. All right, so let's take a look at the apostles' tact from the vocabulary in the verses. Now notice, this is an incremental paradigm, at least it's my attempt to schematically represent this incremental uh, uh, process of the apostle in these verses. He uses the word bold there in verse 8, and what does he use in verse 9, which would be somewhat equivalent to bold, but it's an incremental, it's an escalating use of a term.
Randy? But what's right there is the next word. What is it? Command. No, verse 9. Notice the outline says this word is in verse 9. Art? Mm, nope. Nope. What's the word that would tend to melt Philemon's heart? Love. love. Yes, he moves from bold to love. These are emotional words. Okay, <clears throat> so he has the boldness to do one thing, but it's for the sake of love that he does what he's doing. <clears throat> now, uh, with verse eight, command. Okay, what is the appeal twice in verses 9 and 10? Now, notice that he uses the word aged in verse 9. It really means old man, which suggests that Paul is old at this point in his career when he's writing this letter. So, what would you say compares to that in terms of an incremental image in verse 10? Child, yes, poignant word for Onesimus, the aged apostle, but this child. Of course, Onesimus is no child, but to use the term, you see, draws on the tenderness of Philemon's consideration. Okay, in verse 9, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and in verse 10, Okay, yes, he's a father, but we're going to let that one go with aged in verse 9. Prisoner, who else is a prisoner in verse 10? A joint prisoner. So the image of he is a prisoner, and then the poignancy of, yeah, there's somebody else here in this prison with me. Namely, Onesimus, joined in my imprisonment. And finally... In verse 11, useless poignantly becomes useful. All right, so notice the tact of which he moves through these images. This language of a kind of incremental drawing Philemon's affection to Onesimus, drawing Philemon's consideration to Onesimus, drawing Philemon's in Christ relationship to Onesimus, who is now also in Christ, in a same relationship of salvation and redemption as Philemon himself. All right, now, to face the question of hierarchy. Only you'll notice the way I've expressed that on your outline, hierarchy with equality. There is a hierarchy here. Who is at the top of the pyramid here? That is true. Let's deal with the human characters. Okay? So who is at the top of the pyramid here? Art? Paul. And his office? Apostle. All right. So the apostle is at the top of the hierarchical pyramid. The apostle Paul. Who is next in that pyramid? 
Yes, very good. Okay, Philemon's next. His office or his role? He's a church member. He's more than that with respect to Onesimus. He's the slave owner or master. Okay, so we have Apostle Paul. We have Master Philemon. And who else do we have at the end? The lowest rung on the pyramid. Onesimus the slave. Okay, okay. Apostle, master, slave, Paul, Philemon, Onesimus. All right, a hierarchy. Yes, the apostle is greater than Philemon with respect to his role. Is the apostle greater than Philemon with respect to his equal standing before God in Christ? No, he is not. No, he is not. He is equal in standing in Christ. Okay? There is no one greater or lesser in Christ. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So, Paul, Philemon, Onesimus are one in equality in Christ. There's no hierarchy in that equality. However... There is a distinction of role, as we pointed out. There's the role of the apostle. That is not the role of the members of the church of Colossae. There is the role of master. That was not the role of Onesimus or of Paul, for that matter. There is the role of slave, and that is not the role of apostle or master. But notice, while we have this distinction in role, We have equality of relation, equality of standing, equality of person. The dignity of the person is equally one in Christ. There is no inferiority or superiority of person. There is no lack of worth or increased worth in Christ. That equality in Christ Jesus does not allow for discrimination with respect to inferiority or worth. Which means that we're saying that even though Onesimus had a distinct role, he was not personally inferior to his master, nor was he personally inferior to apostle to the Apostle Paul. He had no less worth or dignity. In Christ Jesus, that worth and dignity is in the Savior. And it is equally in the Savior for those who are all in Christ. But having said that, we do recognize the distinction of roles. Randy? Would it be fair to use the same template with respect to man and wife or man and woman? Yes. Okay. Yes. It's the same template with respect to women of office in the church. There is no inferiority of personal worth or dignity. It is simply a distinction of role. We are not saying that women cannot serve as elders or ministers because they are inferior to men. That is not what we're saying. We're saying that they are equal to men with respect to their standing in Christ, as Galatians 3 points out clearly, but they have a distinct role. They have a subordinate role in the church and in the home. 
It's the same here in this master-slave relationship. There is no degradation of the person of the slave in this Christian relationship. Extremely important for us to keep that in mind. There is no degradation of the personality, the worth, the value of that human being in the master-slave relationship. And Paul will make that clear in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 20 to 24. So you may want to make a note and take a look at those verses, which will also elaborate upon this balanced approach to hierarchy with equality. All right, now let's finish off verse 8 by noting the pathos here uh, as as it is elicited from uh, this text. The pathos here is the sympathy which Paul is uh, deriving for the prisoner himself and Onesimus, particularly Onesimus, the pathos before the tenderness. That is, the feeling of sympathy for himself and for Onesimus before he uses the language of warm-hearted tenderness. My imprisonment, my aged condition, and my child, and my son. You understand how that portrait would impact Philemon. He knows that Paul is in jail. He knows that he's bound in chains to a Roman guard. He knows that he is, so to speak, under arrest. And he knows that Paul is old. He knows that he is aged in years. And having mentioned that to Philemon, Philemon's heart begins to sympathize with the plight and the circumstances of the apostle. And to understand that in those circumstances, something wonderful has occurred by Paul, through Paul, to my former slave. A slave whom Paul calls his child, his son. His little one, if you will. Ah, this is a master stroke. This is a master. It's not untrue. It's not manipulative. It is absolutely uh, genuine. And you see how it will tug on the heartstrings of Philemon in the proper way. In the way of drawing Philemon's heart the heart of Paul's own child. All right, we'll take our break. Come back to verse 9 after you've had a chance to stretch your legs. We are up to verse 9. 
And the question on your outline that begins this uh, section is why the emphasis on imprisonment. So I'd ask you to ponder that for a moment. He comments in verse 9 about being a prisoner, and then in verse 10 reinforces that by mentioning his imprisonment again. It is a fact, of course, that he is in prison, but why does he make a point of emphasizing it? He's already said it in verse 1 in the superscription to this epistle. He's returning to it here. Why is he returning to it? Yes. The uncertainty of his situation. Okay, that's certainly a possibility. Anything else, Bob? Well, he's a prisoner in Rome, and Onesimus is a prisoner of Philemon, in a sense. Philemon owns him. All right, uh, that's possible. (laughs) Go ahead, Randy. Yeah, I think. Spending that a little farther is the injustice of the imprisoned prison nature of him and Onesimus, maybe the unjustness of the slavery, the slave, the, the whole situation. Paul is equally, they're both equally unjust in a certain sense. Now, I think you're going to have to deal with 1 Corinthians 7 if you're going to make statements like that. Uh, you're going to have to examine 1 Corinthians 7, verses 20 to 24 very carefully. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll leave that aside because I am going to address that more fully later on. Ben? Is it perhaps uh, his identification as Christ in the uh, Yeah, I think you're getting to it. Um, <clears throat> he wants to draw Philemon into identification with him and his condition. Now, you were alluding to that when you were talking about this relationship of master and slave. But Philemon needs to, shall we say, feel Paul's bondage. And in feeling Paul's bondage, he feels Onesimus' bondage. Because Onesimus is in the same prison status, imprisonment status, prisoner status, as Paul himself is. But that's not the end of the image. It's not the end of the motif. Paul has identified himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus at the beginning of this verse, beginning of this epistle, rather. The bondage in which Paul exists, the existential experience of the apostle is to be a bond slave or prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the condition which he wants Philemon to reflect upon because it is Philemon's condition. He is a prisoner of Jesus Christ or a bond slave of the Lord Jesus. 
And it is the condition in which Onesimus identifies. He is a bond slave of Christ. He is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. In other words, this motif of imprisonment and bondage is a dramatic relationship which binds the three of them into the same condition. But it's a condition of bondage or imprisonment with respect to Christ, not with respect primarily to Rome, not with respect primarily to slaveholding. It's a bondage to Christ. Now, why is he doing this? Because in Christ transcends imprisonment. In Christ transcends bondage in a jail cell. In Christ transcends bondage to a slave master. In Christ transcends being a slave master oneself. Paul is laying foundation for transcending these relationships which are cultural and social. He is laying the foundation for going beyond in Christ. Now, in a sense, I've anticipated the conclusion of this epistle here. However, I will unpack that in detail as we move towards that conclusion. But this use of this imagery here is in order, remember verse 8, is in order to tie all that imagery into that en Christo relationship. Ben, did you have a question? Okay, thank you. All right, now, the appeal here in verse 9, which is the first use of the Greek word appeal, is the anaphora of affection. The anaphora of affection. The double appeal, the first here in 9, second one in 10, are anaphoras. This is the anaphora of affection, for love's sake. We already commented on the word aged. Paul is an old man. He uses that term for the purpose of poignant imagery, draws the the, uh, pathos, that is, the sympathy of Philemon towards himself because of his condition by reason of age. Now in verse 10, the second anaphora. This is an anaphora of specification. If verse 9 was the anaphora of affection, Verse 10 is the anaphora of specification. Here he specifies his begotten child. Here he specifies the object of his appeal, namely Onesimus. And notice how he does it. Well, you can't see it unless your English translation is like the New American Standard. What is the last word in verse 10? Onesimus. Is that true of those of you who are not using a New American Standard? 
Is the last word in verse 10 in the NIV, Onesimus, or any of the other versions you may happen to be using? No, it's not. In, <clears throat> I, I see some of you saying, looking at the NIV, it's not the last one in the NIV. And you're using the common English version, right, uh, no, I'm using Cheryl? The English Standard The English Standard version. version. Is it the last word in that, ESV? No. It is not. Okay. Now, it is in the NASB because it's the last word in the Greek text of that verse. Ben? doesn't have it in the New King James. All right, now, one could argue that for stylistic reasons for English, you would put it somewhere else. But, in this case, I would argue don't do it. Why? Because at the end of this appeal, in verse 10, he uses the name of his appellant, okay? He, the one for whom he's appealing. He uses the name Onesimus. It's very much like an exclamation point at the end of the verse, at the end of the line, at the end of his appeal. It's intentional. He did it for rhetorical force. And so the English translation ought to preserve it in order to preserve the force of Paul's emphasis upon his child, upon the one for whom his appeal is directed, towards whom his appeal is directed. Bob, you have your hand up. Don't you think that uh, you would have seen Onesimus come back before he read this letter? Didn't this letter accompany Onesimus? Yes, Onesimus is bringing this letter. That is correct. So he knows that Onesimus is back. This isn't something new when he gets to that point in the letter. Uh, that is true, uh, but the letter explains how that drama has unfolded. So he has the record in the letter, and he has the, the apostles' a, a, a persuasive approach to receiving Onesimus completely. In other words, when Onesimus appears at the door, is there any friction between the two of them when he first enters the home? The letter would then... Uh, to take any friction out of the relationship. All right, now, the, the uh, use of that last word, Onosimus, uh, is poignant to emphasize the focus upon the object of his appeal, namely Onesimus himself. Now, what about this word, begotten? How has he been begotten? Became a Christian. Became a Christian. So he'd been begotten. He'd been begotten, verse 8. In Christ. In Christ. Through Christ. By the Holy Spirit, through the word that Paul proclaims that is true, but he'd been begotten in Christ. He is a new child of God in Christ Jesus. He has been newly generated. He's undergone a new generation. What's one word for new generation? One word. Regeneration. He's become a new creation. One word for new creation. 
Recreation, yes. He's been regenerated, become a child begotten again, being created anew in Christ Jesus. And all of that means that Onesimus is in a new relationship. But someone else has been fathered. Paul has fathered someone else. Someone else is his child. In this letter. Eileen. So, you notice that this language would resonate with Philemon because Philemon has been begotten by Paul. Philemon is a child or a son of Paul's ministry. Philemon has been begotten anew, regenerated, recreated, reborn through the word of the Apostle Paul. Randy? I may not be remembering right, but did you say Paul had never been to Colossae? No, he has never been to Colossae. So, remember when we were talking about how Philemon became a Christian? How did Philemon become a Christian? He had heard Paul preach in Ephesus while Paul was ministering there and had taken, had brought the gospel back to Colossae and established a church in his home in Colossae as a result of his own conversion. All right, so now, if Onesimus is a child of Paul, his father, in the Christian faith, and Philemon is a child of Paul, his father, in the Christian faith, what does that do to the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon? Brothers. They are brothers. They are brothers of one another and Christo in Christ. These sons or children of Paul in Christ are brothers in Christ along with the Apostle Paul. Which means that the master-slave paradigm has now, in this letter, in part, become to be seen as what? Master-slave can now be seen as brother-brother, father-son. Father-son, father-child, in other words, familial terms, familial language, the language of a family, brother, child, son, father. Terms which are now poised to reorient the master-slave paradigm, as I suggested before, in a transcendent dimension. Now, once again, we have egalitarian terms without hierarchy. Brother is an egalitarian term, a term of equality. Co-worker in verse 1, 
egalitarian term, term of equality, co-partner in verse 17. There's a lot of egalitarian language here in this letter. That is, that Paul and Philemon and Onesimus are on the same equal level with respect to certain relationships. Does that destroy the hierarchy of role distinction? No, it does not. Even as we pointed out earlier this evening, that hierarchy with equality does not destroy role distinctions. So Paul can use this language of egalitarian relationship without discussing the distinction in role. Which brings us to the rippling narratives. There are rippling stories, that is, stories that ripple and intersect and roll over one another like the ripples on a lake when you throw a rock into it. The rippling narrative of father. Philemon is father who has a son now. who has been begotten as a son, a son of the Apostle Paul. The other father relationship here is the father Paul with respect to Onesimus. He is the son of Paul. So Philemon is the son of Paul the father. Onesimus is the son of Paul the father. And they are brothers in Christ of notice, verse 3, God the father. Is this the reason that Paul uses that formula in verse 3, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is going to capitalize on that patrimony notion, that paternal notion, that fatherhood notion. I have begotten a child, even as I begot you as a child in the faith, in Christ. Because the Father is the one who has begotten us to his begotten Son and begotten us again through his Son so that we are the children of God the Father. Even as you are a child of me, your Father in the faith, even as Onesimus is a child of me, his Father in the faith, Paul presenting himself almost in the role of the triune Godhead with respect to his dramatic involvement in the conversion and reorientation of the lives of these two individuals. No, that formula, God the Father, does not hang in the air in verse 3. That formula is prophetic, it is proleptic, it is foreshadowing. It is a term which is going to become poignant with respect to Paul's own fatherly relationship to Philemon, his son, and Onesimus, his son. The drift of the apostle is to draw the relationship all the way into the Trinity. All the way into the triune God. Randy. So you don't think Paul would rebuke any 
buddy for calling him Father Paul. You don't think Paul would rebuke somebody for calling him Father Paul? Like, like you know what I mean? Well, they're not even equal. I mean, such a comparison isn't even equal. Well, Jesus says, I'm, I'm alluding to the obvious statement by Christ, all right? That's in the background. Hello. Call no man father. And yet here he does. Right. So help so, me out. I'm floundering here. Why are you floundering? He's his father of the faith. But he's not his father of the faith. Somebody claiming to be father of your faith? No, that's not what Paul says. Because you speak the words of the gospel doesn't mean you have any power to change anybody's life. Period. All right. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Right. That's not under. That's not under dispute. So how did he father or begot anybody because he used his tongue? Because he's the agent of it. He's the one through whom the power. Uh, one of you is putting too much stress on it. I don't know whether it's Paul or you. But... Well, blame me. Don't blame Paul. Okay. <laughs> but the word begotten here is, is the begotten is in the text. And to beget means you fathered somebody. And he calls him his son. That's in the text. The only way I can explain the other side of son is father. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Now, yes, March. Yes, it is true that it is a general formula in his epistles. <clears throat> I would have to be looking in those epistles for some other imagery that may be duplicating what I'm observing here. I haven't done that. So in that sense, I admit I didn't do my homework. <clears throat> but on the other hand, I am appealing to this language here, which is poignant. It is, it is front and center in this epistle. And because it's front and center, I'm saying there's something more than just appealing to his traditional a benedictory formula there in verse 3. Some, something is be behind his particular use of it in this case. That is, he could have a broad general use of it in general. But here, his broad general use is more specific to this particular epistolary situation and context. Whether I'm right or wrong about that, be a matter of comparing the formula and looking for familial language in other epistles. Verse begotten used in the text, but it's not in this NID. Verse 10. <clears throat> I have begotten in my imprisonment in Onesimus. All right, now, I've mentioned Francois Tomy uh, in other contexts, and the, the major, uh, most recent, and most provocative and most stimulating book on Philemon which is a collection of essays by a number of scholars, including Jeffrey Weimer at Calvin and also Ernst Wendland uh, in Africa, uh, two of the best essays in that collection. But uh, Tomey's introduction to that work is also superb because he charts out the uh, discussion, the technical and uh, scholarly discussion of this epistle uh, over the last 50 years. <clears throat> Tomey makes an interesting statement. <clears throat> He notes that in first century papyri, first century A.D. papyri, whether Christian or non-Christian, 
<clears throat> the word child is never used of a slave in those papyri. <clears throat> now, this is an interesting observation because it underscores what I'm trying to underscore myself. Now, what the Apostle Paul is doing with the master-slave relationship is he projecting it into a transcendent dimension, transcending the culture of the Roman Empire, transcending the culture of the ancient world, transcending the, the typical and traditional culture of slavery. He's using a term that, is, that does not appear in that vocabulary, nowhere in the first century. It is unique to Paul, which means that what he's doing with respect to this relationship is unique. It is unprecedented. And I'm <clears throat> very interested in Ptolemy's observation because part of this book that he has edited has ransacked all the literature of the ancient world, Greek and Roman, and the papyri, etc., on this issue of slavery, and is in some ways the bottom of the condensation of all that data. So observe, in conclusion, with respect to this point, that Paul is doing something unprecedented here in this verse by calling a slave his child. All right, now in verse 11, when Paul says that he is useful to both Philemon and Paul himself, what is he describing here? <clears throat> Bob uh, raised the question of Philemon bringing this letter back to Colossae and presenting it to his master Philemon. I'm sorry, Onesimus bringing it back. <clears throat> so, uh, we're thinking about <clears throat> how is he going to be useful and what does Paul intend by <clears throat> placing this word in the letter, placing this word before Onesimus himself. Well, <clears throat> yes, Cheryl? He's now a believer in Christ. True. So <clears throat> since he's a believer in Christ, what's he going to do? <clears throat> He will go back to serve, all right? Before he goes back to serve, he's going to go back to do what to Philemon? He's a Christian. He's in Christ. He's going to make amends. He's going to make amends. He's going to do what? He's going to say what? I ask for forgiveness. He's going to ask for... He's going to say, I need to forgive you. He needs to forgive Philemon. He needs to forgive Philemon. <clears throat> Who offended whom? Well, what did I Onesimus do? Well, he stole something for Philemon. He may have stolen something, and then he did what? And he ran away. And he ran away. So when he comes back, he's a Christian now, he comes back, what's he going to do? He's going to ask for forgiveness. He's going to say, he's going to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He's going to apologize for what he did. Okay, so... Paul is saying by this word useful, in part, you're going to show your usefulness by a public repentance. Namely, your public repentance is you're going to carry this letter back. And in carrying this letter back, you're going to apologize to your master. You're going to apologize for anything that you uh, took from him on, in an unwarranted manner. And you're going to say you're sorry to him. And you're also going to declare that you become a new man in Christ Jesus. And consequently, you're coming back to serve him in and through Christ Jesus. 
the, the, yes, Randy. Just to fortify your the statement that I need fortification, Randy. Yeah. Come to my aid. I'll help you now. The child term never mean unprecedented. I'm sure you probably maybe you did say it and I missed it, but I mean a slave in the ancient world in every culture was not even perceived as a person. That's why the word child has more force, I think. It does have force, only be careful with that statement that he doesn't have any person. In fact, it's true that in Roman law, he actually had rights. So, yes, so you take, you'll need to look at the literature. <clears throat> okay, now my, my point here is that this term useful is just simply not neutral or obvious. This term useful includes a kind of profession or a public sign of repentance on Onesimus' part. He is going to have to appear before Philemon and the church in Colossae as a returned runaway slave. Not only holding Paul's letter as he presents it to Philemon and to the church, but also presenting himself. He is not ashamed to come back and to apologize for the wrong that he committed. And he is delighted to come back and say that his heart has been changed by the Christ of the gospel that Paul preached and that Philemon believes. So the term useful here is actually projecting its own kind of dramatic scenario and drama. It's not just, well, okay, now, because you're a Christian, you could be useful. No, this is the drama of the story of that usefulness in terms of the public view of penitence and sorrow for the sin of offending his master, whether by theft or some other violation, and running away. And Paul plays on that with the use of the Greek here, and I put the Greek terms there, a creston and eucreston. And you'll notice the alpha primitive, that is the A before the, uh, uh, the letter creston in the first word, which means not useful. It, it negates the word. Creston means to be useful. So the A creston means not useful. He's playing on that. He's punning on it. And that's alluding to another pun in this epistle, which some of you may be aware of, the pun on the, the word profitable in verse 20, onaimon, onaimain, and onesimon. <clears throat> they are alliterative. They sound very much alike, <clears throat> and consequently, there are those that believe onesimon means useful or profitable. And Paul plays upon the personal name by actually using the common Greek noun in that 20th verse. Two instances then of the apostle punning on the vocabulary, the Greek vocabulary here, in order to underscore the transformation that has occurred in Onesimus. These are marks of a master craftsman. These are marks of a master orator, a master literary artist. Paul is a master writer as well as a master apostle. And so we leave you 
with Paul and Onesimus and Philemon and Christo. And of course, you in Christ and Christo drawn into the drama of this relational paradigm, which has been unfolded in this letter to this point. We're not through with the riches of it. And when we return two weeks hence, we'll pick up those riches and expand them beginning at verse 12. Any questions or final comments? Let's close with prayer. Most gracious God, our Father, you are the parent of us, your children. Even as you are the parent through your Son of your children in Christ, Paul and Philemon and Onesimus, we rejoice that our union as your sons and daughters, is as their union. Brothers, sons in the faith, that faith which is ours in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we also recognize that in this great equality, you've also placed distinction of roles. And so we praise you for the wisdom of both that equality and distinction. For it too flows from your own divine essence and tri-personal divine distinction. A unity of equality in Godness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with a distinction in personal center of consciousness. Lord, how we praise you with delight and thanksgiving that we can understand in part these mysteries which have been hidden and now revealed in our Savior by your Spirit. So encourage us in this wonderful relationship. Bless and sanctify our walk and life in Christ. May we be before you a mirror of what you are to us. A loving Redeemer, a kind Heavenly Father, a wonderful breath of a new spirit and brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ Jesus, our great Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name for all of these rich, rich blessings. Amen.